Firstly, the church, you would have noticed, would have had a strong and an effective leadership who were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures and who diligently taught them to the congregation. In chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul states, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. And as I pointed out in my talk last time, that when making the central part of his argument in chapters 9 to 11, he either quotes or makes direct reference to the Old Testament on more than 25 occasions. So Paul must therefore have assumed that the recipients of the letter had a good working knowledge and a reasonable understanding of those scriptures. Otherwise, his argument would have been completely lost on them. We would also have noticed that it was a good church, mostly made up of faithful people who were dedicated to serving the Lord. In chapter 1 he said, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now the fact that their faith was proclaimed in all the world tells me that it was outwardly evident. They were a people who put into practice what they heard preached. Yet it was also a church that had its problems. And in chapter 16, Paul speaks of troublemakers sowing division. People more concerned with serving their own appetites than genuinely serving the Lord. And there also seems to have been a minority of worldly people who justified themselves by believing that their continuing fleshly and sinful behaviour only served to emphasise the graciousness of God. Let us continue in sin that grace may abound, was their plea. And we had also noticed that the church was predominantly made up of people of Gentile origin, with a small but significant minority of people from a Jewish background. And you would have also noticed that the considerable tension existed between them. And that, the cause of that tension was primarily due to a reluctance among some of the more influential Gentiles to allow those of Jewish origin to integrate themselves fully into the body. There was an apparent lack of desire to show hospitality and an insensitivity to cultural differences, particularly with respect to food and days of observance. Now, although some of the Gentiles had adopted a somewhat arrogant and haughty attitude to the Jewish brethren, some of the Jews were not exactly helping matters. Some, it appears, had taken it upon themselves to assume teaching roles in which they were teaching the necessity of keeping the law when they were clearly neglecting to do so themselves. And their hypocrisy was evident to all. However, despite their problems, they were a faithful church who took the need to preach the gospel to unbelievers among whom they lived seriously. And one of the things that you would have noticed is that they had rather more success in reaching unbelieving Gentiles than unbelieving Jews. These unbelieving Jews seemed unnaturally resistant to the gospel. Now those with an inquiring mind, both then and now, would want to ask why. And that is going to be the main focus of our study this morning. But some among, from among the Gentiles, it appears, believed that it was because God had replaced Israel with the essentially Gentile church as his people. And given the outward evidence that the Jews were very resistant to receiving the gospel, and with the consequential effect that the church 
was fast heading in the direction of becoming almost exclusively Gentile, it seemed like a reasonable explanation. However, this should serve as a warning to us of not allowing outward circumstances to determine how we interpret situations, particularly when they contradict the word of God. And given that the Roman church was so well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, they should have known that such a view was contrary to what was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He wrote, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, if this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, I don't know when it was the last time that you observed the sky at night time, but the last time I looked, the moon and the stars were still there. And God has promised that as long as they remain, that Israel will not only remain as a nation, and by that, a recognisable ethnic group, but they will also remain as a nation before him. In other words, they are still his people and will continue to be so for the foreseeable future. You see, the view that Israel had been replaced by the Gentile church suggests that the word of God spoken through Jeremiah has failed. So Paul began his argument in chapters 9 to 11 by stating categorically that it has not and then proceeded to not only prove that it has not failed but also to clearly demonstrate why it cannot fail. And last time we looked into this and in so doing we looked at something of the sovereignty of God and we concluded that God's plans and purposes are not dependent on the cooperation of people. We saw how God's promise to bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been achieved not only through faithful believing Israel, but also through unbelieving Israel too. As Paul wrote in chapter 11, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, God invites us to cooperate with his purposes and plans so that we can share in their consequential blessing. However, the outcome of those plans are not dependent on our cooperation. So if the word of God has not failed, how do we account for the current spiritual tradition? By current, I mean at the time of writing. How do we account for the spiritual condition of Israel? Now in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives us the answer, at least in part, Their current condition can be explained by the fact that God has hardened them. Now this leads us to ask certain questions. Why has he done so? Is it due to an arbitrary choice made before the beginning of time? Or does the reason have something to do with the people themselves? And last time we considered the statement made by Paul that God shows mercy to whomever he will and he hardens whomever he wills. And we came to the conclusion that this is not some unfathomable mystery decided before the beginning of time, but he shows mercy to some and he hardens those. Who he shows mercy and hardening to is clearly revealed in the scriptures. He hardens those who deliberately, willfully and stubbornly persist in refusing to cooperate with his plans and purposes after having been given ample opportunity to do so. 
And he shows mercy to those who will humble themselves and ask for it. As the proverb says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this was clearly, as we saw last time, demonstrated in the lives of two mighty rulers who were each raised up for the purpose that God's name would be declared through all the earth. And God did this through Cyrus the Persian, who cooperated, and through the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus, who did not. Now, these conclusions that we came to last time can be weighed and tested. They do represent a testable hypothesis. The reason that Paul brought this whole matter up in the first place in chapter 9 is because it was relevant to understanding Israel's current spiritual condition and God's purposes concerning Israel. So if what I said last time is a true representation of Paul's argument, then it should be clearly seen in chapters 9 to 11 that the reason God has hardened Israel is due to, due to their own stubble refusal, stubborn refusal to receive and cooperate with God's plans and purposes, despite being given opportunity to do so. Now this is the question that Paul turns his attention to at the end of chapter 9. And Paul begins by explaining why the Gentiles are more receptive to accepting the gospel compared to the Jews. Let's now read a small section of what what he says. We're going to begin reading at chapter 9, verse 25, and we're just going to go through for the moment to chapter 10, verse 4. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short, uh, a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Now, the first thing Paul points out in this section is the fact that the Gentiles are more receptive to the gospel has not come as a surprise to God. You see, for several hundred years earlier, God inspired two of his prophets to write about this. The fact that the Gentiles responding to his plans and purposes was written about by the prophet Hosea, who wrote, I will call them my people who were not my people, and that they shall be called sons of the living God. And the resistance of the Jews to the gospel was prophesied by Isaiah, who wrote, Though the number of the sons of Israel as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. Now, since this was clearly written in the scriptures, the current receptivity of the Gentiles and the resistance of the Jews should not therefore have come as a surprise to a people who were as well-versed and as well-schooled in the Old Testament scriptures as the members of the Roman church. And given this situation was foretold in, the, in those scriptures, isn't that where they should have also looked for an explanation Instead of speculating their own idea that God had replaced Israel with the Gentile church, which was clearly contrary to the word of God. Now in verses 9.30 through 10 to verse 3, Paul clearly states why it is easier for the Gentiles to accept and receive the gospel than the Jews of his day. The Gentiles have attained righteousness because they were not pursuing it. Israel has not attained righteous because they were pursuing it zealously. Well, that's clear, isn't it? No, I didn't. <laughs> clear, but um, I think we need to, to dig a little deeper into that if we're going to make any sense of it. See, in order to make sense of it, we must first of all remind ourselves what the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is a gospel of righteousness. It is good news about attaining righteousness. You see, there are many in churches today who misunderstand what this means. There are many who believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and made the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind so that we don't have to be righteous. This is not the gospel. It is true, Jesus did live a perfect life a perfectly righteous life. And he did indeed make the perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we could have a righteous standing before God. However, he did all this so that we could become righteous. As the old hymn, There is a Green Hill, declares, he died to make us good. And by good, I mean just as God intended us to be. Now let me clearly state what this does not mean. It does not mean that having been forgiven and declared righteous, that we can and must live a perfectly righteous life in our own strength. That would not be good news, and this is not a description of the life of faith. The good news is that when we repent and believe the gospel, we are born again. We begin a new life. We are a new creation. The prophet Ezekiel explained it like this. Our heart, the core of our, the very core of our being, that part of us that defines who we really are, has to be removed. It's hard like flint. 
It cannot be moulded or shaped. It cannot be written upon. And when our old heart is removed, God gives us a new heart that is soft. It can be moulded. It can be shaped. God also puts his spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit indwells our hearts and he moulds and he shapes our hearts, conforming us into the image of Christ. He works in us to make us righteous. And he does this by writing God's law on our hearts. You see, we cannot make ourselves righteous, but God can as he works in us and through us. The problem people have is that we find it hard to believe that God can work in us and through us to make us righteous. And that's true of just about all men of faith. All men of faith began this way. Take Moses, for example. When God called Moses, he told him to seek an audience with Pharaoh and to tell him to set God's people Israel free. Now, what was Moses' reaction? Who am I to do this? Who's going to listen to me? I can't even speak properly. Now, God did not disagree with any of that. However, he did make it clear to Moses that he had missed the point. The fact that Moses was not up to the task was completely irrelevant. The point was that God was up to the task. Moses needed to realise that God could and would achieve his plans and purposes Through him. All that God wanted from Moses was his willing and active cooperation. And we can look at ourselves and rightly conclude that we can never become righteous in and of ourselves. However, faith is believing in what God can do and what he has promised to do. And he can work in us and through us to make us good. So a life of faith, therefore, is a life of walking in the Spirit. And it means living in active cooperation with God who works in us and through us to make us righteous. Now, why was this easier for the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteous to believe? And notice I said easier, I did not say easy. See, for the Gentiles to believe the gospel, they needed to be convinced of their need to be righteous. Now, every one of us, regardless of our background, was made in the image of God. And even though we all now have a fallen, sinful nature, we do all have a conscience that reminds us that we really ought to be good. And the Gentiles in Rome at the time had found a way of dealing with their consciences. And they'd done so by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Ignoring the clear evidence of the natural world, they had managed to convince themselves that God did not exist. And as a consequence, their society became characterised by wickedness and immorality, which Paul so aptly describes in Romans chapter 1. However, their society did not want for any lack of religion. Instead of worshipping the one true God, they simply made up gods of their own imagination. False religion abounded. Their society was therefore characterised by idolatry as well as immorality and wickedness. But deep down, their consciences, though suppressed, 
were still telling them that this was not the way to live and this, that this was not the way they should behave. So when the gospel was preached, their, their consciences were reawakened. You see, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And he does so through our consciences. So some, though not all, welcomed the good news of the gospel of righteousness. They welcomed the fact that their sin could be forgiven and that they could be made good if God worked in them and through them. However, not everyone welcomes their consciences being reawakened. Not everyone welcomes being confronted with the fact that their hearts are desperately wicked. It is therefore not surprising that in just a few years after this letter was written, that a wave of persecution swept outward across the whole world, beginning in Rome. See, when consciences are stirred by the activity of the Holy Spirit working in Christians, some will try to suppress this by getting rid of the Christians. So for the Gentiles to come to faith, they needed to be convinced of their need for righteousness. And this need for righteousness is inherent deep down within each of us through our consciences. So why then was it much harder for the Jews? Well, as Paul, exp- as Paul goes on to explain, they had found a very different way of suppressing their consciences. The Jews did not need to be convinced of their need to be righteous. They already knew this. Their problem was much greater. They already believed that they were righteous. In actively pursuing righteousness, and they did so with tremendous zeal, they became self-righteous. They believed that they could become righteous in and of themselves through keeping the law of Moses. And they were very diligent and determined in this. Their lives were characterised by strict religious observance. They were dedicated to prayer, generous in their giving. They observed religious ceremonies and festivals. And Jesus rightly observed that they would travel over land and sea to make just one convert to their religion. And they had a deep reverence for the Old Testament scriptures. The five books of Moses, what is known as as the law, were publicly read throughout the entire throughout the entire year, beginning and ending at the Feast of Tabernacles. So why didn't they attain the righteousness of God? Well, because they failed to understand, or as Paul says, they were ignorant of the fact that the righteousness of God cannot be attained by works. It can never be earned nor deserved. It is a free gift of God's grace. So why did they get this so wrong? How is it that a people who so revered the scriptures and had heard them read over and over again had completely missed the point? And clearly they had. See, this is what Jesus pointed out to them. In John's Gospel, Jesus said to them, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And he went on to add, For if you believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. You see, they were without excuse. The scriptures which they revered are clearly all about Jesus, the one promised in those scriptures as the redeemer of mankind. The Jews had completely misunderstood the scriptures they so revered. And the point I particularly want to draw attention to today 
concerns the section of those scriptures that I've already mentioned, known as the law. See, the Jews had completely failed to realise the purpose of the law. They were correct in their understanding that God intended it for them to try to keep it diligently. However, in so doing, it was intended to make them realise that on account of the fallen nature they inherited from Adam, that they could not do so however hard they tried. And this is why the law contained a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system served several purposes. Firstly, it would provide a means of covering their unintentional sins, their sins of weakness, the sins that resulted from their falling short of the law's standards. It did not cover intentional sins, those sins committed out of a deliberate and willful disregard for the law. It would also remind them that God would only deal favourably with them on the basis of his mercy and that they could never earn or deserve his favour. The law and its sacrificial system could not solve the problem of human sin. All it could do was to restrain sin, to hold it in check, until the promised Redeemer or Messiah came. And as Paul wrote to the Galatians, it would serve as a tutor to bring us to Christ. Now if that was what the Old Testament had taught, why had the Jews so completely missed the point? And the answer to that is a solemn warning to us all. It's simply because they paid more attention to the oral traditions of men and their interpretations than what the scriptures had actually said. They paid more heed to the teachings and theology of men than they did the word of God. And that's what Jesus was dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. He was not, as some would suppose, correcting the Old Testament law. He was correcting those oral traditions which had relaxed its standards and changed its meaning. You see, whenever Jesus referred to the Old Testament, he always said, it is written, or have you not read? However, you read carefully in the Sermon on the Mount, he began each correction by stating, you have heard it said. Which tells us he wasn't correcting the scriptures, but those oral traditions. Now, since these oral traditions had relaxed the standards of the law, the Jews began to believe that not only could they keep the law, but also to believe they were actually doing so. And as a consequence, they became self-righteous. In fact, they became so focused on maintaining their self-righteousness that they even missed the Messiah when he came. As Paul stated, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And quoting the prophet Isaiah continued, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whoever believes in me shall never be put to shame. And in concluding this short section, Paul added in 10 verse 3, that as a consequence of their being so focused on establishing their own self-righteousness, that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God which is through faith, and as a consequence, they had not submitted to it. Now, we're going to read on in a moment. And in this next section, Paul contrasts the righteousness that comes by faith with a righteousness, with righteousness attained by works. Before going on to answer the question that I began with today. See, at the beginning I said that the conclusions I came to last time with regard to who God hardens 
could be tested. And at the end of chapter 10, Paul gives us the reason that God has hardened Israel. Let's therefore read on to see what he has to say. (coughs) For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that he was raised, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord Overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. The sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, often, to get a clear understanding of something, it's just as important to consider what what it isn't before considering what it is. And this is Paul's approach to describing the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul has already commented on the zealousness of the Jews in their pursuit of righteousness. He said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he goes on to explain that the righteousness that comes by faith does not involve going to the heights of the heavens or the depths of the abyss. No, the righteousness that comes by faith is within easy reach. And to receive it, it involves your heart and your mouth. It involves confessing with your mouth the Lordship of Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
And as stated earlier, the heart referred to here is not the physical organ pumping blood around your body, it's referring to the very core of your being. So to be saved involves believing in the very core of your being in the resurrection of Jesus. So why is this required for salvation? Well, it's because it's the evidence that God has fulfilled his promise to redeem mankind. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is the outward evidence and the assurance that the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind has been accepted by the Father in heaven. Now I state again the word fact. We're dealing with facts. You see, at the time of writing, there were still many alive who were actual eyewitnesses. There were people who actually physically saw, met with, and even ate with the risen Lord Jesus. See, the resurrection is an undeniable historical fact, and Christianity is therefore an evidence-based faith. It's a faith based on real events, and our assurance that our sins have been forgiven is totally dependent upon it. Now, Paul stated this clearly in the letter he wrote to the Corinthians. I just want to read a short section from 1 Corinthians 15. You might want to turn in your Bibles to actually read along with me. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. And then a little later on in verse 14, he writes, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And in verse 17, he goes on, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Put it bluntly, no facts, no faith. So to become a Christian, a person must come to a deep inner conviction that they are a sinner in need of a saviour, and that their sin can only be forgiven through belief in the death and resurrection of Christ. However, this deep inner belief is not to be kept in the quietness of our own hearts. It is to be, clear, it is to be declared openly. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What we say, therefore, should declare the Lordship of Jesus over our lives. Now, clearly this means telling other people about Jesus. However, I believe that, it also, that this also goes much deeper because Paul did emphasise the lordship of Jesus. Let me explain. You see, when God first made mankind, we were made in the image of God. 
God made a perfect world in which there was no death, no disease or suffering, and man was made to live in it. To be made in the image of God meant that the first man, Adam, was made to live a perfect uh, a life of moral purity. His character and conduct would be a perfect reflection of the righteous character of God. Man was therefore designed to live in, a, in perfect obedience to God's authority. Man was therefore made to live under God's lordship, recognising that it was only God who had the right to define moral standards. It was God's right to say what is right and what is wrong. However, Adam rebelled against this. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he was rebelling against this and asserting himself as the one who would set the moral standards. He was claiming a right which did not belong to him, the right to be lord over his own life and to determine what is right for himself. And this is the fallen nature that we've inherited from him. See, this inherent, this fallen sinful nature is inherent in all of us. See, we're all born with a desire to be Lord of our own life. We're all born with a desire to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, And we're all born unwilling to submit to God's rightful Lordship over our lives. So this brings us to the true meaning of the word repentance that Christians often used. You see, repentance is about rejecting the authority we exert over our own lives and our wrongly perceived right to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. And it's about humbly asking God in his mercy to take back what was rightfully his and to become Lord of our lives. See, repentance, therefore, is not just about saying sorry for what you've done wrong. It is not just about turning away from your bad deeds. It's also about turning away from your own standards of righteousness. It's about turning away from trying to establish your own self-righteousness. But repentance is more than just turning away. It's most importantly about turning to. Who you turn to. It's about turning to Jesus and asking him in his mercy to take up his rightful place as your Lord and Saviour. See, Jesus commanded his people to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And disciples are people who are subject to the discipline of someone who has authority over them. A Christian is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is someone who lives under his authority, is subject to his discipline and lordship. And I believe that when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that this meant that the lordship of Jesus should be evident in everything we say. You see, it's relatively easy to simply say Jesus is Lord, but that's not going to save you. And it's relatively easy when we give careful thought to our speech to say the right thing and avoid saying the wrong thing. However, it's our unguarded speech that reveals what is truly in our hearts. Is the Lordship of Jesus evident in our speech when we're off guard? When we find ourselves in an unfamiliar situation? When we're confronted by a difficult and awkward individual? 
and when we enter into a stressful situation unexpectedly. Now the word discipline often has negative connotations for us. It's often seen as punitive and something to be feared. But that was not King David's experience of God's discipline and lordship. Do you remember what he wrote in arguably the most famous of all his psalms, The Lord is My Shepherd? He wrote this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now the rod and staff were symbols of the discipline of the shepherd. And the fourth part of the word comfort comes from to fortify or to make strong. So David's experience was that the presence and the discipline of the Lord instilled strength and drove away fear. So if the righteousness of God does not come through zealously pursuing it through the keeping of the law, but rather through the confessing the lordship of Jesus with your mouth and by believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then why doesn't somebody go and tell the Jews? How are they to attain the righteousness of God that comes by faith without hearing this good news? And in asking this question, Paul is preparing to answer an objection that he has already anticipated. As he goes on to make clear in verses 18 through to 21, they have been told many times. And when you think about it, they have had far more revelation concerning this than anybody else. You see, in addition to the Old Testament scriptures, they have had the unique testimony of John the Baptist, who was raised up to prepare them for the arrival of Jesus. And at the time of writing Romans, John the Baptist's ministry would have still been very much in the memory of Jews living then. For Paul was writing only about 30 years after John's ministry. And from the accounts we read of John, thousands heard his testimony. And he was not the sort of character you could ignore, nor would you forget him in a hurry. And immediately following John came Jesus himself. And multitudes followed him all over Israel, hearing the most outstandingly authoritative teaching and witnessing many amazing and undeniable miracles. And even following his death and resurrection, they had had many years of hearing the testimony of the apostles and other eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And yet they still did not believe. They still refused to accept this testimony. Paul therefore brings this chapter to a conclusion by making clear God's perspective on the situation, by recording what God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And this is the very verse which confirms the conclusion that we came to last time concerning who God's hardens. You see, when Paul goes on in chapter 11 to explain that God has hardened Israel, this verse gives us the reason why. He has hardened them because they have already hardened themselves towards him. They have willfully and stubbornly persisted in refusing to cooperate with his plans and purposes for their salvation, despite being given every opportunity to do so. Now, just looking forward to next time, God willing, we'll look more deeply into the meaning and purposes of God's hardening of Israel. 
Now, just from what we've read today, we can say it does not mean that God has given up on either individual Jews or indeed the nation as a whole. As Paul makes clear in 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So the hardening, uh, so uh, Paul makes clear that the salvation in Israel is very much part of his prayers. So the hardening he describes in chapter 11 clearly does not mean that they are without hope. Otherwise, praying for them would be pointless. But we'll look into these things more deeply next time. But there's one other thing I need to draw attention to, or one other question I need to ask before concluding today. Why is it that they've been so stubborn in refusing to accept the good news that the righteousness of God is attained by faith? And the answer is simply this. See, to do so would mean admitting that the righteousness that they had so zealously and diligently worked for all their lives was completely worthless. And Paul understood this better than most, since however righteous they thought they were, he was more so. See, he had once been outstanding among them in the vain pursuit of self-righteousness. In his letter to the Philippians, he wrote, If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more so. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Yet when Paul met Jesus, he came to see all his own self-righteousness for what it really was. He goes on, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. See, in order to accept the righteousness that comes by faith, the Jews would have to admit that they were sinners in need of a saviour. And on account of their pride, they simply could not bring themselves to do so. Now, I need to remind you that what I've been describing concerns the situation Paul was addressing in first century Rome. To what extent, if any, a similar situation exists today is therefore a matter of prayerful consideration. But one thing we can say, though, is that self-righteousness within the church today is every bit as much of a problem for people of Gentile origin as it was for the people of Jewish background in Paul's day. See, people who believe themselves to be basically good are very hard to reach with the gospel. See, there are many in churches today who profess to be evangelical Christians. They, I would say they sincerely believe that they are Christians, and yet they have never repented of their sin. They've never asked God for forgiveness and know nothing of the lordship of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ in their lives because they pay more attention to the teachings and doctrines and philosophies of men than they do the word of God. This very week I heard the testimony of such a man who professes to be a Christian, yet who clearly stated in a television interview that he had never asked God for forgiveness and strongly intimated throughout that interview that he did not feel the need to. And to assure the interviewer that he really is a Christian, he spoke about how much he enjoyed going to church and listening to the sermons of his pastor. 
Sadly, the pastor he mentioned is well known for teaching the philosophies of men rather than the word of God. He is well known for teaching that the way to be successful in life is by developing a can-do attitude through the power of positive thinking. Now, I have little doubt that this teaching would have been interspersed with a few Bible verses to give it a, a, a Christian camouflage. However, this certainly isn't what the Bible teaches. You see, when Moses said to God that the people would not listen to him and told God that he could not speak properly, God did not respond by telling him to have a little more faith in himself and to work at developing a positive mental attitude. Now, God told Moses that it was not about what he could do for God, but what God could do through him. And all through scripture, we see the same dynamic at work, divine inspiration and human cooperation. And this is true of the Christian life, in which God works in us and through us to form his righteous character within our hearts, as we submit ourselves to his lordship and walk in active cooperation with him. And this is just as true at the beginning of the Christian life as it is as we continue to walk in the Spirit. And this Paul makes clear in verse 13. He writes, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So who's doing the calling? See, the, Paul call, the call that Paul speaks of here is a reciprocal call. See, the call of God has gone out to all people. It's gone out through the natural world. It's evident through all we see around us. It's gone out through our consciences. It's gone out through God's word. And it's gone out through the faithful preaching of the gospel. And God's call to repentance has been sincerely made available to all. For it is his desire that all will be saved and that all will repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. However, if that call is to be effective for salvation, a second call is required. It is the response of the penitent sinner who calls to God, Have mercy upon me, a sinner. As the scripture says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. May God bless you all.